Well, as we go forward in worship now, we do want to attend to God's Word. Um, and so we'll be reading four scriptures this morning. Uh, the first one will be from Isaiah 19, verse 23, to chapter 20, verse 6. Um, this will be our main uh, sermon text this week. Our uh, place in Isaiah this week actually stretches all the way from Isaiah chapter 13 to Isaiah chapter 20. So again, I'll be referencing all of those chapters, uh, but for the sake of time in our scripture reading, we'll just be reading from this uh, latter portion in Isaiah chapter 20. Then we'll be reading from Psalm 65, verses 5 to 8, which talks about how we are to praise the Lord. In Romans 3, verses 10 to 20, we will see just a very clear statement of all of humanity's sinful condition before God. And then lastly, in 2 Corinthians 12, we see that God indeed promises mercy and grace and strength for those who will confess their weakness to him. And so Elisa will be reading for us from Isaiah, and then Nate from Psalm 65, John from Romans 3, and then Ryan from 2 Corinthians 12. Let me pray now that God would give us eyes to understand his word and would give me a mouth to proclaim his word. God, we know that the highest worship that you require from us is the worship of faith, the worship of simply trusting you, of saying that you are Lord and we are not. And so, God, I pray that you will grant that faith to each person here this morning, Lord, that even as we read your word and even as I preach your word, uh, Lord, would it not be something that we merely apprehend with our minds, but Lord, would it be words that we read and words that we hear and where we are willing to say, yes, Lord, your word is true. My own heart is false. And so turn my heart to your word. And so that's what we ask you to do right now, God. I pray for myself in particular, Lord, as I preach your word. I cannot proclaim your word rightly in my own strength. I need your spirit to come now and to help me, to fill me for the purpose of proclaiming your word. And so, God, come and help me that you might be known and that your people might trust in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Isaiah 19, 23 through 20, verse 6. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go, and loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, This is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Psalm 65, verse 5 through verse 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Romans 3, 10 through 20. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, as we go forward in Isaiah this week, we're actually coming to a major new section of Isaiah. You'll recall that for the last couple of weeks, we were looking at Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz, as King Ahaz was considering trusting in nations other than the Lord. In some ways, the new section that we're in is really just building off of some of the themes that we've already seen found in the previous chapters. But in these chapters, Isaiah is no longer talking to Ahaz. Isaiah seems to be talking to the nation of Judah as a whole. And Isaiah is talking to the nation of Judah about all the other nations on the face of the earth and what God's plan is for them. Now, I've argued from the beginning of this series in Isaiah that Isaiah is most essentially a prophet of the Lord's glory. And Isaiah is a prophet of the Lord's glory primarily in the sense that Isaiah points to the reality that God's glory is made most clear when we see both his burning wrath against all evildoers And nevertheless, at the same time, when we see that he promises a day when all evildoers will be shown mercy. And Isaiah makes the point that in this is truly the glory of the Lord, that there is no other being in all reality who is like the Lord in this way, who can be absolutely furious and enraged at the wickedness that mankind does, and yet who at the same time can be willing to extend mercy to those same people who hate him and reject him. And so we here who are gathered this morning are recipients of this glorious promise of Isaiah, this day when salvation would come to wicked sinners. Only we haven't seen the glory of the Lord in quite the way that Isaiah expected, I believe, at least not the way that he expected at this early point in his ministry. We have not seen the glory of the Lord in the sense of seeing him high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple, which is how Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. No, we have seen the glory of the Lord in seeing the bloodied Christ upon the cross. And beloved, what could be more glorious than that reality, than the reality of the Son of God dying for sinners? The very Son of God who had been granted responsibility and authority to judge the whole earth, who instead of coming in judgment upon the whole earth, comes and dies for those whom he was ready to condemn. Beloved, if you do not see glory in that this morning, then you do not have a heartbeat. This is the most glorious story that has ever been written in all creation, that every other story that humans may write can only hint at, can only point to the glory of this story. And so let us all pray that the Lord would awaken our hearts to this glorious reality, to the glorious reality of the Son of God dying for sinners. 
of Almighty God, becoming the Lamb who was led to the slaughter by evil men and for evil men, people like you and me. There has never been a greater demonstration of God's glory than that act, and there never will be a greater demonstration of God's glory than that act. And again, Isaiah points us forward to that reality that this is the glory of God. This is how God proclaims his name by both showing his fury at sin and then by forgiving it as if it never had happened. And so Isaiah knows, God knows, that in order for us to see the glory of this reality, we need two basic things. First, we need to be able to see the majesty and purity and holiness of God. We need to be able to see how God truly is high and lifted up above all creation. After all, if we do not see God as glorious and as amazing and as wonderful, then it is not stunning to us, it is not surprising to us when he becomes a man like us to save us. We think, oh, well, this is very normal. God is not that much higher than we are. Why should he not become a man to save us? But when we see just how elevated God is, just how other he is than any created thing, then this reality that he would become a man to die for us can land on our souls with all the weight that it rightly deserves. But the second thing that we must see, and this is really just the other side of the coin from this first reality, is we must grasp the wickedness of the world, the wickedness of all mankind. Again, if the world is not so very wicked, then it becomes less surprising that God would come and would have mercy on us. If we're just kind of halfway bad and so God only has to do a little to rescue us, well then why not come and rescue us, right? Who wouldn't save someone who's in trouble if they were easy to save? I think a good metaphor for us here in our dog-loving culture is just to consider dogs as rescue animals, right? We recognize that somebody does a good thing when they rescue a dog. And yet, at the same time, I wouldn't say we're necessarily amazed by it. After all, dogs are often very cute. You know, they're often very friendly. They can fill your own life with more joy. And so it is a wonderful and a good thing to go and rescue a dog. But at the same time, most of the time we would say, well, dogs are fairly easy animals to rescue. They have a lot going for them. And this is how we so often look at ourselves and look at humanity. Like we really do have a lot going for us. Yes, we're in trouble, but how could God not love us? But the reality that scripture paints is very different. We are not some cute, lovable dog who can just look at God with those puppy eyes when he's wondering if he should save us. No, we are the mangiest, the sickest, the meanest dogs around. There is no reason why God should see us and say, I want to adopt that one. I want to rescue that one. There is no redeeming quality that we have. We are so mired in our sinfulness. And so those, beloved, are the two things that we need. We need an appreciation of the glory and majesty of God. And at the same time, we need an appreciation of the vileness of us as humans. When we have an appreciation of these two things, then suddenly this story of the glory of God dying on a cross for us can have the weight which it truly deserves. And beloved, in one sense, all of the Christian life boils down to growing in our understanding of these two things to grow in our understanding and appreciation of the greatness and glory of God. This is never something that we can sufficiently grasp. Indeed, we will spend all of eternity searching out this reality, just how great and glorious God is. And so throughout our Christian lives, we discover vista after vista of God's majesty. And at the same time, throughout our Christian lives, 
As we grow in this awareness of God's glory, we also grow in our appreciation for the depth of our wickedness and our rebellion. We have no end to our repentance, beloved. We only have growing depth in our repentance. We see more sin. We see more ways that we have spurned the glory of God in our lives. And so we repent more and more deeply day by day as we see how deep our wickedness truly runs. And so, beloved, when we gain an appreciation of these two things, we truly become unstoppable and unshakable Christians. Our hearts are overwhelmed, are flooded daily with joy at the thought that God would set his love on us sinners. We can scarcely believe our luck. We pinch ourselves daily just to see if it really could be true that God would save us. We are filled with compassion and pity on those who have not yet come to grasp this great news that we ourselves have received, that we are actually worse than we could ever imagine, and yet we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We're filled even with compassion for other Christians who seem to think so little of the privileges that they have in Jesus Christ. And beloved, it is precisely because this two-sided message is so overwhelming and amazing and even almost unthinkable that Isaiah, along with all the other prophets, so often comes to us like a fire hose of information. Isaiah and the other prophets don't come to us dispassionately, just trying to logically explain to us how it could be that God would love sinners. No, it's almost as if Isaiah, in his writing, is so overwhelmed with the reality of the glory of God and is so overwhelmed with the reality of human sinfulness that as he is writing, it's like the ink is just pouring out onto the page faster than he can even capture the greatness of this message. It's like the Niagara Falls is flowing into his mind. It is flowing into his heart as the revelation of God. And he's simply trying to catch it in a teacup of the written word so that we can somehow drink it in. And so we come to one of those passages this morning that just seems so overwhelming in its scope. So overwhelming in its message that it's difficult for us to fully comprehend just how great it is. This text that is before us this morning is part of three cycles of judgment and deliverance that Isaiah proclaims that go all the way from chapter 13 to chapter 27. And chapter 13 to 27 seem to be organized in three overlapping cycles. In other words, Isaiah is proclaiming the same thing three times over. He is proclaiming God's judgment upon the nations, but he's also proclaiming God's blessing upon the nations, as well as his blessing for his people, Israel. And I believe that Isaiah's method in these three cycles is to, by the power of repetition, set forward these great themes that I have just spoken, and by repetition, try to pound them into our heads. He is trying to get across the majesty of God on the one hand and the awfulness of humanity on the other and the grace of God in the face of such awfulness. And so let me apologize in advance if the sermon this week and the next two weeks sounds fairly similar. I see Isaiah repeating himself and my job as a preacher, I believe, is simply to reflect the word of God. So I'm going to repeat myself as well as we go through these three cycles of judgment and blessing. If it's good enough for God's word to be repetitive, then I suppose it should be good enough for me to be a bit repetitive. And again, these realities are so glorious and so bottomless that repetition again and again is not a bad thing. One aphorism that I have come to love is repetition is the mother of learning. I don't know who first said that, but I do think it is gloriously true. We cannot learn something if we only ever hear it one time. We need things as humans to be repeated to us over and over if we are to grasp them. 
Whether it's something as simple as a vocabulary word or something as complex as some high philosophical idea, we need things repeated over and over. And above all, what God knows that we need to hear is the gospel message, is the message of our sinfulness, is the message of his grace poured out despite that sinfulness. And so if we repeat these things over and over, it is all to our good, beloved, that we might actually come to understand them. And so in the chapters before us this morning, 13 to 20, Isaiah is dealing with five nations. And again, this cycle of God's pronouncement upon five nations will continue again in chapters 21 to 23. We'll again see five nations there, although the nations will not be as clear as they are here. And then again, in 24 to 27, there will again be five entities, but they will be more fuzzy still. It seems that Isaiah is repeating himself, but he is going from the present and the real to the more futuristic and the more idealistic. And thus, in our present chapters, we have some statements that seem very concrete and understandable and relate to the world around Isaiah in his own day. But then, as we move forward in this section of Isaiah, we leave behind what is more concrete and what is more real, and we move toward what is more figurative and futuristic. The themes are the same. The themes are repeated for us three times over, but they're repeated in three different scopes or three different lines of harmony so that God himself might create this symphony that we can see his glory and also our sin, and also his blessing. And so just to give you a rough outline of these chapters, the first nation that we meet is the nation of Babylon. Now this in itself is an interesting selection. Babylon was not the main power of Isaiah's day. That would be Assyria. And yet Babylon, even in Isaiah's day, was nevertheless known for its high culture. And throughout Scripture, all the way back to Genesis 11, Babylon is the symbol of the pride and the power of man. And so already in speaking of the nation of Babylon, we have a nation that is very real in Isaiah's day. But I think Isaiah is also treating it as something of an ideal, something of an ongoing reality throughout human history. After the nation of Babylon, we come to the nation of Philistia. Now, you're probably familiar with the Philistines who David fought, and of course, the great champion Goliath was one of the Philistines. Philistia represents, I believe, those who are sworn enemies of God and his people. What is God going to do with them? After Philistia, we have Moab. Moab also has a very long biblical history. The Moabite people are kin to the people of Israel. The Moabites, the Bible tells us in Genesis 19, are the children of incest between Lot and his daughters as they were escaping from Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on, in Numbers 22, the Moabites are the people who hired Balaam, the pagan seer, to come and curse Israel. And eventually, when that cursing of Israel failed because God forced Balaam to speak only blessing, the people of Moab decided to send prostitutes into the camp of Israel to lead them astray sexually. They almost succeeded in causing Israel to turn away from God until Phinehas the priest stopped the disobedience by spearing a man and woman in the act. And in this way, I think the people of Moab can represent here those inside the church or those near to the church that nevertheless do not understand the gospel and ultimately seek to lead the church astray from the truth that God has portrayed. After Moab, we come to Damascus and Ephraim. Now, Damascus and Ephraim were the most present worry in the day of Isaiah. They were the ones who were threatening Judah in Isaiah's day. They were the ones who instigated Ahaz going to Assyria and asking for help. And so I think that Damascus and Ephraim represent for us those very present troubles that the people of God have, whether internal or external, throughout history. And then lastly, 
And finally, we have the nation of Egypt. Egypt in the Bible, of course, is featured most prominently in the story of the Exodus. Egypt is the nation that enslaved the Hebrew people and would not let them go until God brought about their destruction. And so in this way, Egypt is really not too different from Babylon, representing the pinnacle of human pride and power. Now, in Isaiah's day, Egypt was still a force to be reckoned with, but it was only a second-rate power. It could not really rival Assyria. It was much stronger than Judah, which was Isaiah's nation. And yet, Isaiah identifies Egypt as primarily being a place of idolatry. And this is also consistent with God's portrayal of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And so I believe that Egypt is representative of that large mass of people who simply do not know God and instead serve idols. If, if Babylon is a picture of those who arrogantly reject God, thinking that they can find a better way to live than what God can give, then Egypt represents those who ignorantly reject God and are simply satisfied with lesser gods than God himself. In all of this, Isaiah is clearly speaking to all the earth. He is not limiting himself to these five nations. And that's why I say that each of these five nations represent something larger than themselves. In Isaiah 14, verse 6. Sorry, 14, verse 26. God says, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. And so God's judgment, God's word to these five nations is in reality his word to the whole earth. And this simply echoes words that we have already read in previous chapters. In Isaiah 11 verse 9, Isaiah said that the earth, the whole earth, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God has already proclaimed that he is king of the whole earth. And in Isaiah 9, 5 to 7, God has promised that his coming king will end all wars and will have a kingdom that lasts forever and never stops increasing. Again, a worldwide kingdom. And so God has chosen these five nations to represent these different slices of humanity so that together he is speaking to all the people of the earth. Now, it would certainly be an interesting study to look at how God treats each of these nations differently, given their representative slice of humanity, to discern something of God's purpose for each one. However, instead of remarking on the differences between how God treats these nations this morning, what I actually want to do is to notice the similarities. Just before this message, we read Romans 3, which puts all of humanity into essentially one bucket. Even though each person is gloriously unique and is created by God with particular talents and attitudes of mind and temperament and all the rest, it is nevertheless true that all humanity is most deeply united by one very basic characteristic. We all hate God. Most basically, we all hate God because we all want to be God. That is, we all have a God complex. We all individually think that our own way is right and that everyone else, including God, can basically just go pound sand. This bent is inveterate in us, and it will not completely go away until the new creation. And even as Christians, even though God has taken away the root of this impulse, the habit still remains in us. And therefore, we must constantly be on the lookout for ways in which we think that we know better than God, or even better than other believers around us. We are not to be arrogant in any way, shape, or form. Rather, we are to be humble and receptive to input from God first and above all but also to one another. And so even though 
Again, it is true that we all differ a little bit in how we approach things and how given we may be to one particular sin or the other or how we may think through some aspect of obedience or the other. The bottom line is that we are all much more fundamentally alike than we are different. And the way in which we are most fundamentally alike is in the fact that we are all sinners. We all hate God. As Romans 3 says, we all turn to our own way. We all use our tongues to deceive. Our mouths are all full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are all swift to shed blood. None of us fear God. This is all of humanity. Not one escapes. So even though Isaiah does have some nuance that he employs between these various nations, Isaiah's more basic message to all of these nations is that they are all haters of God. Beloved, do you know that your neighbor, if they have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, is actually a hater of God right now? Do you know that your coworker is the same, that your children are the same, that your family is the same? Anyone who has not trusted in Christ has this fundamental animosity toward God? That this is a massive problem? Indeed, it is the most massive problem in all the earth, and it is a problem that does not go away, that cannot go away apart from a personal trust in Jesus Christ? That even just being religious, even just going to church cannot help you? That what you really must do is to utterly renounce your God complex, your pride in thinking that you know your own way best. And you must instead say that only God knows best and therefore I will follow him wherever he leads. Whether your own flesh and your own mind like it or not. This is what faith is, beloved. Isaiah himself speaks of this God complex in chapter 14, verses 12 to, verses 12 to 14. Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, but again, I think this is representative of all mankind. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Beloved, that is the essence of sin. And that is what all mankind does. We all say, I will make myself like the Most High. I will be God over my life. God will not be God. His ways will not rule over me. And again, beloved, it is a process of our whole lives that we must uncover each way that we are rejecting God's authority in our lives and going after our own way. And so the fundamental background of all of these chapters is this message that God has all the earth dead to rights. That God is sovereign over all the earth in this particular way. That he is the judge of all the earth because he alone is righteous and good. And all the earth is corrupt and evil. Only God is fit to judge. And because only God is fit to judge, that means that all the earth is accountable to him, as Romans 3, 19 says. God is over the world in the same way that a guillotine hanging over the neck of a murderer is over that murderer. The murderer is guilty. He is sentenced to death. And that blade of the guillotine hangs there as a just punishment for what that man has done and is waiting to come down and execute its just sentence. Beloved, in the same way, God has all the earth dead to rights. 
No one is good. God is only holding back his judgment. He is not holding back his blessing. He pours out his blessing still and graciously, even though his judgment is entirely justified and is fact on the very near horizon. And with that in mind, that God is the just judge of all the earth and that all the earth is accountable to him for their wrongdoing, which all the world has performed, what is God's response? What does Isaiah say to the nations in these chapters? He says three things to them. Firstly, and unsurprisingly, he says to the nations that I will crush you. And again, given what I have said thus far, this should be no surprise to us. Indeed, this is the natural consequence of our rebellion and of God's righteousness. And if this were the only thing that God said, it would make perfect sense and it would be entirely just. Hear these words of condemnation in this passage. Here's Isaiah 13, verses 4 to 13. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from distant land, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, a destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy it and to destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light i will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Beloved, God's word for the nations and his word even for us, if we do not repent, is that he will crush us. His anger will not be restrained forever. Rather, he is coming in judgment. And there are more verses that we could go to in this very passage that speak of God's anger, his fury against sin, and the judgment that he will carry out upon all the nations. And I want to move on now to the second thing that Isaiah says to the nations. And this, beloved, in light of everything I've just said, I hope is fully staggering to you. The second thing that God says to the nations is he says, I will bless you. He says, I will bless you. So amazingly and inexplicably. Now, before looking at this from the text, let me just tell you, Christian, that your heart is to mirror God's heart in this regard. As Christians, we do not get to choose between hatred of evil and desiring to bless those who are evil. No, we are called to be like God. We are called to image forth God. And so we cannot simply be on the side of the wicked pleading for God to have mercy as if God would be wrong to punish them. On the other hand, we cannot be on the other side simply crying out for God's mercy, uh, God's judgment and wrath to fall upon those who are evil. No, we must stay in this difficult middle ground that God himself occupies of absolutely hating sin of being abhorred by injustice, of hating all the wicked deeds that mankind does, and at the same time, seeking to bless them, seeking to win them over to the mercy of God, 
Beloved, this is God's heart for sinners. Somehow he is able to both at the same time hate them for their evil doing and at the same time say that he will bless them and he will pursue them. Now the Lord shows his blessing upon evil people in two steps in this passage. The first thing we see is in Isaiah 16, verses 6 to 11. This is where God is speaking to Moab. He says, We have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Harasheth. Now, before we move on, just hear that again, that God has just said that Moab is a wicked nation, that they are proud and opposed to God. But then continue on in verse 8. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The Lord of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep. This is God speaking, beloved. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elayla. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyard, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. God is saying, I have judged them and their joy is gone. And then again in the very next verse, beloved, therefore my inner parts moan like a leer for Moab and my inmost self for Kir Harasheth. Beloved God is mourning for the very people that he condemns to die. It breaks his heart that they turn away from him. He grieves their iniquity, even as he justly punishes it. So here we see the first step of God blessing a sinful people. His heart is drawn out of himself to weep for this people who have no more joy. And then the second part of God's blessing that we see when he actually pours out his blessing on people, we go to Isaiah 19, verses 19 to 24. And this is where Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Egypt. He says, In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. Now pause there an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. Isaiah has just gotten done speaking of all the idolatry of Egypt, how wicked they are, how thoroughly God will punish them. And now he is saying, in that day, in a day to come, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to Yahweh at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to Yahweh, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." 
You see, beloved, the same God that condemns sin, that hates sin with a more holy hatred than any of us could ever muster up or fathom. It's the same God that cries out to Egypt and said, blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands. This, beloved, is the blessing that God will bring upon all the nations that they all shall know the Lord and they shall worship him in truth. And the third and the last thing that Isaiah says to the nations is he tells them that I will be exalted. And just as I began by saying that the glory of God is most clearly seen when we see how he will pass over sins and give grace, In the same way, Isaiah is saying to the nations that the Lord sees your sin and he will judge your sin, but he is also giving grace. The great end goal of this whole ordeal, of this whole pattern, is that God alone will be exalted. That you will turn to me as king. This is the purpose of God showing forth both his wrath and his mercy. We see this firstly in Isaiah 17, verses 7 and 8. It says, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. You see how the Lord is saying through this process of bringing both judgment upon the people for their sin and then showing them my grace and compassion, the people will no longer look after these idols. They will no longer worship idols. Rather, their eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. They will worship Him in fear and trembling. They will exalt Him alone. They will no longer cling to idols. And we see this same point reiterated at the very close of this cycle of pronouncements from Isaiah in chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. Now when God says their boast here and their hope, he's talking of Judah because Judah was formerly hoping in the nation of Cush, in the nation of Egypt, and God is saying that when I come in judgment upon these nations, what is going to happen? What is going to happen is my people will then be ashamed because of Cush and Egypt. And the inhabitants of of this coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? You see, beloved, when God brings forth his judgment and then brings forth his grace, what the people see is that everything else they hoped in, all the idols that they built their lives around, everything else that they thought could save them and rescue them, make their lives worth living, give them abundant life, they see that all of these things are actually hopeless hopes. And that only the God of heaven and earth is worthy of living for, is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. Beloved, if you have been saved, you have been saved for this very purpose, to give God glory with your life. To say, I trusted in so many other things for so many years, and then I realized that those things could not rescue me. They could not make me whole. That only God could. And so, beloved, I exhort you for any small way you might be living for anything other than God alone, any way that you rest on anything other than God alone, give up that idol right now. Give up that thing that you are trusting in. It will be wiped away in the flood of God's wrath anyways. You cannot keep it forever. And trust in God alone. And beloved, ultimately, The most glorious and remarkable thing, again, the way we most clearly see the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Because it is only in Christ that all of these things come true in the same moment that God's wrath can be poured out on sinners. And you all know how God's wrath was poured out on the very Son of God. How he was beaten, how he was mocked, how he was abandoned. God's wrath was poured out on Christ entirely. And even as God's wrath was entirely poured out on the Son of God, that was God's message of mercy, of redemption to the nations, that you will be my people, even though I have all of these things against you. And in this way, it is in Christ, again, that the glory of God is most clearly beheld. The absolute hatred of sin intolerance of sin and even the smallest degree. And at the same time, this compassion that overflows for those who rebel and sin against him. So God, so would you join me right now to pray to God that he would give us hearts to just exult in Christ alone, understanding that we have no good thing in us. We are wicked sinners, dead to rights before God. And yet, because of the compassion of God, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, that we might behold his glory and live for him forever. Heavenly Father, I praise you. for this almost fathomless work that you have done, God. That we who were so wicked and vile would nevertheless be brought near by the blood of Christ. God, we praise you for this. God, I pray for every soul in this room, my own soul included, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts more and more to this incredibly glorious reality. Awaken our hearts more and more to our lostness, to our death, to our iniquity, to our stench. And awaken our hearts more and more to your favor, to your love for us, to your holiness and righteousness that did not merely see fit to condemn us, but to rescue us. And so God, even as I offer that prayer of petition to you. I ask that you would now welcome our prayers of petition as a people, as well as any prayers of confession that you may lay upon our hearts now, God. Would you put your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, so that we might pray to you now. Receive now our prayers of petition and confession.